All right, I am here again with Kevin McKernan. Kevin is a founder and CEO of Medicinal Genomics and knows a bunch about, he, he designs tests, knows a bunch about testing, and so I'm going to ask him about that. I'm also going to ask him some other questions related to the um, development of the mRNA vaccine, which, um, well, you can, not, not that you're an expert on that, but I think you might have some insights into sure. what they're trying to do there. So. Um, my, my first question is, um, first, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for, for coming back on. Yes. Um, thanks for having me again. I, I've been enjoying all the last podcasts. Now I, I feel oh, like I've got a, a higher bar to reach with your most recent guests. They, 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 I've had, yeah, I've had some good ones. I've had some good ones. Um, so my, my first question is, there's a lot of controversy about the qPCR testing and, um, you know, there, there, my sense is there is, there is some legitimate concern about how it's being used. Um, even the Carrie Mollis, the guy who came up with it, yes. voiced some of those concerns. Um, but that maybe some of it's being overblown and people are saying, well, it's completely worthless. What's, what is actually, so what's your view of the PCR testing? So, um, I, I met Kerry once at a, I think an AGPT conference in Florida. So his, his concerns over PCR were about specificity and that it's highly specific. And he was not convinced that HIV was the only virus involved in AIDS. And so by using PCR to track just HIV, that we were chasing a ghost. And he's written politically about that. Now, he, he wasn't necessarily speaking out against how to use qPCR and that it's not appropriate for this type of diagnosis. I think he was, excuse me, suggesting it was a leap to say when you find RNA of a virus that you that it's there for the causative disease that might be causing AIDS, right? So that link he was very, he was very critical of for a couple reasons. One, there's controversy in making that link in the literature. Uh, folks who want to go down that rabbit hole can, it's a, it's a deep one, but there's, um, you know, he was of the, of the opinion that HIV is fairly benign and there's probably something else going on that wasn't perfectly tracked. And this kind of pharmaceutical industrial complex got involved and started hyper testing for that kind of like we have now. And then no one was able to kind of unturn that tide and the medical community just ran with that hypothesis. And anyone who spoke out about it got just, you know, excommunicated, right? Which they did. They did, and right, we can see this kind of repeating itself with the lockdowners and anti-lockdowners today. We're getting a lot of censorship of the, the Michael Levitts of the world and the Scott Atlases of the world because they're speaking a different narrative, and the pharmaceutical industrial complex have kind of marched the, the scientific steam engine in one direction and can't change it. Um, now, in terms of its, its uh, specificity as well, he was concerned there could be variants of the virus, there could be other viruses that it wasn't hitting, and so it, it, uh, it's picking up RNA fragments. You may not always pick up live virus, and so that was something that um, uh, was on his concern. And those things do apply here as well in, in COVID, in that we've got a very long 30,000-letter viral RNA genome, and we're only amplifying maybe 200 to 600 bases of it, and that means it doesn't have to be fully intact. It doesn't necessarily have to have a protein code around it. So we don't know if it's infectious or not by just counting how many viral particles or how many viral DNA molecules we have. We're not backing that into how many infectious particles there are. Now, there has been work done in that work. Didier Riolt's lab in France, who was um, quite well known for his hydroxychloroquine work early on, has done that work. And the, the the way that they do this work is they take patients that have... Um, 
I think they did a couple thousand patients very recently where they did quantitative PCR across all those patients and measured what their CQ values were or their cycle threshold values. Those terms are kind of interchangeable in the space. Mm-hmm. And they correlated those to how many plaques they would get on a Vero cell lawn. So in order to measure viruses, it's kind of like looking at colonies, but inverted. You don't, you don't look for bacteria growing into colonies in a Petri dish. You look for death spots on a lawn of mammalian cells, and those are called plaques. And each one of those was presumably initialized by a single virion entering a cell and starting to kill all the cells around it. So they do these things called PFU measurements. And you can correlate the amount of PFUs you see in a patient sample with the CQ that you get. And he did this work demonstrating that CQs after 33 or 35, depending on the assay, had something like only 3% live um, virus. And, and, and so there's very little infectivity of patients that, that have CQs beyond that point. Now, that's his particular qPCR assay. I'm going to generalize here across a lot of the PCR assays in the field. You, it's generally not safe to do this. Like if, if his assay stops at 35, you can't then turn around and, and take some other person's assay and say the CQ of that assay also is a live dead cutoff at 35. Okay. Right. So Although other, there are other, um, and I don't remember which, which field they were speaking from, but, but other experts in the field have, I've seen that number 35 as being sort of, it seems to be sort of a significant cutoff point because others have said, yeah, yes. anything, anything over 35 cycles and it's kind of meaningless, but you're yes. saying that's not safe to say, depending on the well, essay. It's, it's, there's a couple reasons why it's meaningless. There's, there's, um, I can understand why people are saying collect as far out as you can so that you can take the most conservative approach possible, but they're not looking at the economic circumstances of hyper-quarantine people, right? Um, they're viewing that as no big deal. Someone else gets stuck in their house for two weeks. I don't, you know, maybe they get fired, maybe they don't. You know, there's, there's all types of economic destruction that occurs that results in casualty that they're indirectly that they're not, they're not considering there. Um, I, I, there's a couple issues when you get past 35. One of them is the live dead issue is that there, there tends to not be many infective live particles when you're dealing with so few of those. And we'll touch on, there are methods to deal with this that we published that can get rid of all the dead fragments. I don't think they're going to get deployed for a host of reasons that we can touch on. But there's other issues when you get out that far is most of these tests, in order to get their EUA, had to publish their limit of detection. It's known as a lot. And that what they do is they take the virus and they dilute it serially down to a single molecule and see where their, their assay stops picking it up. And most of them stop at around 50 to 100 copies, which is around 35, um, maybe 37 for some assays. But the, the point is, um, if that's the point at which you have a limit of detection, which means you're getting 100% detection on all your serial dilutions to that point, anything you detect after that is not gonna be reproducible. And so you shouldn't be reporting on things below your LOD, but everybody is. Uh, and, and I think that's, that normally would not happen if it weren't in this emergency use kind of phase is that everyone rushed these things out. They set the things at 40, some countries set them at 45 and they're calling things below their lot. That, that, that means they're probably picking up noise. Um, there's a second issue that's not really discussed at all in the media, uh, which is there is a sampling bias that goes on when you're picking things out of people's nasal pharyngeal cavity. Um, and this is just very simple sampling statistics, but when they're measuring their LODs, their LODs, they're taking copy numbers of RNA and putting them directly into their qPCR reaction and measuring it to detect them. 
the thing is the swab that goes in your nose doesn't go directly in the qPCR reaction. It goes into some type of sampling buffer that's usually two mils of fluid. Uh, two mils is two milliliters of fluid. And then usually about a fifth of that gets DNA purified and maybe a tenth of that ends up into the qPCR reaction. So if you can imagine that nasal swab has, let's say, 50 copies of virus on it, and you then only put in, you know, one fiftieth of, of it into your PCR reaction, there's a chance you get nothing in your PCR reaction, right? So this, this subsampling is actually very, very serious when you get down close to your limit of detection. You have to pay very close attention to this, this subsampling that you're doing. Otherwise, you're going to have a random number generator down at those CQs. And I think some of that's going on in the field is that that's not being accounted for. And so you may get some reproducibility issues down when you start pushing out past 35 CQs. Uh, and that can actually be, be a cause for false negatives, which... Right, uh, that's, that's what it sounds like. So, yeah, so, you're so saying- that, that's, a, that's a separate issue. But false negatives, I think, are important to keep your eye on as well because false negatives are what often show up in all of this reinfection noise. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, you know, they, 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 they were clear for a few days and, and, and then I, they got it again and we didn't sequence the genome of the new one. Therefore, you know, they should sequence it. <laughs> in some cases they do, but in most cases they don't. They just say, voila, you know, two months later we got it again. It must be reinfection. No, it could have been a period of false negatives and qPCR that cleared you and you right. just have the same infection. You just haven't fully cleared it. Um, the, the third issue is um, is really compounding a couple of these things together, which is to get to your overall false positive rate. And in most of the EUAs, they didn't have enough sample, positive samples, that, that is. They had a lot of negative samples when they ran these, these um, EUAs. Um, positive samples are people that are confirmed to have COVID. Well, when you have a test that's coming to market at the beginning of a pandemic, you don't have a lot of positives to play with. So you, you go and test a lot of negatives and you get a lot of negatives in your statistics, but you don't have a lot of positives. So we don't really know um, have a good feel on what the false positive rate of this is. They, they, they throw a lot of negatives at it and then measure how many times they get indeterminate results. And you can see even in Roche's EUA, there's a couple in there. There's like two indeterminate out of 400, all right? So that's um, not a big deal when the frequency of the disease is very prevalent. The ratio of, the, of your false positives to real positives is, is separable. It's, it's quite big. But when the frequency is where it is today, um, the numbers I'm seeing, like on the Northeastern board university here that tests their students a couple times a, a week, is like one in a thousand, one in two thousand. That's getting that's that's much different than one percent or ten percent, right? That's getting close to where the false positives are actually going to show up. If you look at some of the false positive statistics on these tests, they're down in that range. So it, when the false positive rate is close to the disease prevalence, you're going to get an equal number of false positives as you are going to get positives, and you're not going to know which ones they are. Uh, so yeah. you're, you're, yeah. you then end up pouring. So you're going to get. It sounds like what you're saying is you're going to get to a certain point where you're always going to be getting positive results. You're going to be getting some number of positive results, and there's no way to tell. You, you're never going to get to zero, and yet you've got these politicians saying we've got to get to zero. Yes, that's a major issue. So they, they really need to implement um, serial testing and test multiple times, perhaps you know, 24 or 48 hours apart to rule out some of these false positives. Because mm-hmm. um, when you get down to one in 1,000, one in 2,000, and they're still closing schools over these levels, right. which is what's right. insane. So, uh, and half of them are probably false positives. I think a paper came out very recently suggesting like 44% of them were false positives. And the reason it was that high is not because the assay changes, because the disease frequency went down. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when the disease frequency plummets, the ratio of the number of positives to false positives is suddenly equal. Right. <laughs> but right. when the disease frequency goes up, you end up getting like 90% of these things being real positives. So um, that, that's that, that, that's another one of the, the issues that are at hand. But, you know, the, the live dead thing is a little bit frustrating for a company like ours because we've been designing live dead PCR kits for the cannabis field for years. And um, it, they work really, really well at knocking out any of the fragmented DNA or RNA that's floating around. And these are not um, like Star Trek science. This is like 1980s Sam Brook and Maniata stuff. This is old school molecular biology, like textbooks that were hole punch type of, you know, carbon copy era molecular biology textbooks <laughs> that teach you how to do this stuff, which is you apply an RNAs or a DNAs to the sample before you lyse it and it eliminates the DNA or the RNA fragments. And, and viral capsids have evolved specifically to be RNAs resistant. So when you add this enzyme, it will not kill the, 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 the RNA inside the virus. It will only kill the RNA outside the virus. And then you just need something to get rid of the RNAs. And there's a lot of ways to do that. But so when you say the, R- the RNA outside the virus, you're talking, that's fragments, not, not exactly. living, not living. Yeah. So when, if you look at Riel's work, what's really interesting is that on the upswing of the virus, it, it grows very, very steeply. And that's mostly live virus, probably 95, 99% live virus. And then as you start to clear the virus, a higher and higher proportion of the virus becomes dead virus. It becomes mm-hmm. fragmented virus. And that's why he sees these cutoffs where the qPCR is positive for two or three weeks after this thing starts to decay. And some portion of that is dead RNA that's contributing to the signal. And that's in fact the largest time window of positivity, right? So I would imagine if I were a testing company, I would not want that window to go away because that's where you get your magnification event. When you get positives in the slope of people clearing this, then they get contact traced at five more tests. Like everyone in your household gets tested, Mm -hmm. right? So for every RNA fragment they pick up that's not infectious, they pull in five more tests. So they have no motivation. They have the opposite motivation to get rid of this problem. Uh, and it, yeah, you're saying it's an easy, it, it's an easy problem to get rid of this pennies. Okay. Cheap as cheap as hell. And it, it's nothing inventive. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's embarrassingly like biology 101. Now it needs to be validated and, and it would need to go through a lot of testing, which maybe they didn't have the time to do this when they were raced into EUA and then things got cemented and they don't have time to go back and revalidate. I, I can get that. But, um, I also think early on, they probably didn't fully appreciate how long that, that shedding window was and how much it would be contributing to false positives. Um, but doesn't that happen with other viruses? I mean, it, it why is this a new issue? It's not a new issue. Actually, live dead qPCR, you can Google it. It's been a problem in the, in, in the industries for a very, very long time. In fact, um, some industries have been kind of cemented into these regulations of, of testing with culture because they're afraid of this problem with qPCR. qPCR picks up all, every molecule that's there, live or dead, and the food industry doesn't like that because they like to sterilize stuff. And so they're, yeah. they're afraid PCR is too sensitive, is gonna fail too much produce. Uh, we get this in the cannabis side as well. We've got regulators that are trying to push, the, even in a missed COVID, they're trying to push things back to culture. And you know the challenge with culture is it can take five days. So by the mm-hmm. time you get an answer, it's kind of irrelevant. Like what's, what's on your right. food five days later, Yeah, <laughs> you know, so it, it, you kind of need an answer quickly to track a pandemic. So I, I think when it came to a pandemic and even the FDA is trying to push the whole industry out of this historical culture based um, techniques with something known as culture independent testing. They have a whole program to, to really sunset culture because they know 
it has all types of problems. Not every virus can be cultured, like, like mm-hmm. we see with virocells. Oftentimes, they can't be cultured at all. And that's very true with microbes as well. 95% of them don't culture. So oh, wow. you can really only capture certain things like E. coli and salmonella and very well-studied organisms where they know what carbon sources they need. Whereas PCR is like this universal tool, but you need to do some tricks to make sure that you can do live dead detection. And there's, there's, a, there's kind of three or four different published ways of doing it. We prefer the enzymatic methods where you just use DNases and RNases and these things erase things that are not inside of the lipid bilayer. If they're floating around in free solution, they eat them up, but the enzymes are too big to get into the cell or get into a capsid uh, to chew up the native genomic DNA or RNA. Um, and so we, we've had some of those products in the market in the cannabis field for um, probably, they've only been out, I think, for like six months, but we've been kind of publishing on them and presenting on them for over a year. Uh, and they, they work really, really well at knocking down the fragments. So um, we, we demonstrated this kind of proof of concept in, um, in, a, in a cannabis paper where we had to look at the virus spiked on the cannabis because there was concern that some grows. Um, yeah. The cannabis field was deemed essential. And so we had, we had, we had people that were trying What a plants. change from 10 years oh ago. Oh my God. Yes. It's like, <laughs> it's all talk about twilight zone, right? Wow. <laughs> we're all locked down and cannabis is, is essential. Um, it's upside down. So there were trimmers that were coming down with this. We, we don't grow plants, but this is brought to our attention that some trimmers were coming down with COVID and they were concerned, well, if they're coughing on the plants or touching the plants, is it a, is it a fomite? And what do we have to do about this? And so we just started to see whether or not, you know, the, how long does the RNA last on the plant and how long is it live versus dead? And that's what that preprint goes over. And we use that technique to demonstrate kind of the live dead thing. The only challenge is we don't have a BL3 laboratory, which would be needed to do what Realt did and plate these things and do a correlation to PFUs, to CQs, to really nail the live dead thing. We were able to, to purchase the... Um, the virus that was collected, the SARS virus was collected out of a person in Washington state is now an ATCC biobank sample. So you can get that, although it's attenuated, it's gamma radiated, so it's not infectious, but you can get that as like a laboratory toy. Um, and uh, we've been, we were playing around with that just to demonstrate that we could detect things and that this RNA trick would eliminate fragmented RNA and, and leave, um, you know, capsided things intact. So that, that's, um, it still would need validation by someone who was a BO3 lab before it could be put to use, but I'm a little skeptical that the testing market actually wants it. Mm-hmm. Um, as the disease prevalence gets this low, um, everybody's ramped up all of these pipelines. I think the same thing's even happening with a lot of these really pro-lockdown academic scientists is that they just started getting the grant money for this rolling. It's kind of hard to turn around and say, ah, the pandemic's over, have the money back. Right. Uh, and, and the, you know, the, the, basically the train is left and it's going to be really hard to slow down at this point. Have we ever seen this kind of problem before where there's an incentive to keep producing positive test results? Are there other epidemics where that's shown up? Um, no, we, we kind of have the, uh, yeah, opposite incentive in the cannabis space and that people just are, they're always trying to make sure their stuff passes. So they don't want to see yeah. positives at all. Uh, and so we're always playing this cat and mouse game where they are trying to irradiate or ozone treat or microwave the cannabis before they send it in for testing. And, and <laughs> we can usually figure that out with DNA. It's hard to figure it out with culture. But uh, no, I'm not familiar of, of another industry that has the, these types of dynamics where, where there's so much federal money being injected into the system that's just hard to predict. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and seems that, like it's, it's related to the contact tracing too. If you didn't have this this new world they're trying to implement of 
tracking a virus through a population. And this just seems like one of the one of the side effects of doing that. I do think that's a that's a major um, bias that's happening right now. Is that if if we were monitoring HCOVs the way we're mo- monitoring COVID right now? What's it? What's an HCOV? Oh, they're the, the other COVID. The, yeah, those are the five prior um, coronaviruses. I think it's okay. uh, 229E and OC43, and um, there's uh, I'm forgetting the other the other one, HKU1. These, these are other historical coronaviruses that, in fact, do have a measurable IFR in nursing homes. Um, there's there's um, I'm sure few papers on this, uh, and they have you know all the things that they're complaining that are novel, like long COVID and, and all of these uh, myocarditis things, these are all common. I mean, these things happen mm-hmm. with other viruses, but they're being painted as some novelty coming out of this you know, Frankensteinian um, virus. But it's, you know, from my opinion, it's just another evolution of these other cold viruses. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get another one. There's going to be C20 right. or C21 or C23. And, um, you know, my general concern is, is that we're, we're treating this like it's suddenly novel only because we're looking at it. Right. And if we were tracking the other coronaviruses like this, we, we, we would see a lot of the same patterns. Uh, and we probably would have been scared out of, our, out of our pants if we had molecular testing to the degree we have now, tracking the flu and tracking any of these other things. But now that the, the media has turned on to this thing, it's been politicized, um, the, the coverage of this is just out of control. Uh, and, and I do think that is, um, that's driving a lot of the panic and I don't know how much, how much that panic is going to disappear in November because it seems to be worldwide. Yeah. Um, and except in Sweden, they're not scared except, in Sweden. Right, right. So in New Zealand, and you know, I, I, eventually it'll be in New Zealand. It's just a question yeah. one. Yeah. Um, yeah. But what I worry about with people who are taking this New Zealand strategy, who's never taken that strategy before in history, which is hide. Um, and if you hide for too long, you're probably going to get whacked by by COVID twenty three, and you're going to get whacked really hard by it. Um, yeah. I mean, all the T cell data is demonstrating that the the best saving grace that we have in this pandemic are our prior coronaviruses. Right. That, that's right. the best protection we have. I mean, hydroxychloroquine is nice. Uh, masks don't do, doesn't seem like they do anything. Uh, there's, you can go through all the NPIs that we're doing and there's just, there's arguable effects on these mm-hmm. things. The one thing that stands out without a doubt is the, the T cell data that yeah. prior coronaviruses are giving us. So what happens when the, all of society decides to boil a bubble for a year? Right. That's about the time it takes for your, your, your cold virus uh, and, and your, your immunity to wane. I mean, the antibodies disappear pretty quickly. But yeah. if you look at the infection cycles of coronaviruses, they oscillate like every two years. And the theory is that your T cells begin to, you know, begin to wane as well over a period of time. And so then the, the, the things reemerge as people's immune systems begin to wane. But never in history have we all decided to socially distance our immune systems right. so that we can build up enough dry tinder to really nail us for the next coronavirus that comes out. So right. I'm, yeah, I'm that's a little a, worried about the isolationist approach. Yeah, that's and that's a big, I, I asked, I think I've asked a couple other guests about that, that question because, you know, on the one hand, it seems like the lockdowns have done nothing to alter the spread of SARS-CoV-2. That's kind of, it's come and gone everywhere, sort of in the, following yeah. the same pattern. But then the other question is, well, we are isolating ourselves though. So what, what about all these other pathogens we haven't yet exposed ourselves to? And now, you know, we're going to have this whole year of not exposing. I just feel like that's a big question mark that's, yeah. that's hanging. Yeah, it's never been done before. Not globally. So yeah. that's, that's a huge experiment that's underway. 
and uh, and I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily a good idea because it reeks of central planning the economy. It reeks of centrally planning the mm-hmm. money supply. Now we're centrally planning the T cell supply. Um, it's going to create big booms and bust cycles. I think. Yeah. Uh, in terms of uh, uh, just like we see in, in other you know cases of Austrian economics. So. Yeah, and that's that's something I, I wish I wish more libertarians would would get that that you know there there seems to be this this um, sort of exception in in libertarian circles that you know in some libertarian circles I should say that you know the state's terrible and central planning is awful except in this one you know really ex- ex- <laughs> right ex- except except for except for you know the case of like a global pandemic and that's and that's always the example that that gets brought up is except in the case of a big pandemic or something and. and I think what we're seeing now is God, no, that's the last thing you want. If, if, you know, let's say this was a lot more, let's say this was as serious as Neil Ferguson told us it was going to be. Right. The last thing you would want is some central planner t- dictating how to respond to it. And I think we're seeing that now we're seeing the devastation. I mean, Sweden is one of the, Sweden and New Zealand are both two kind of different examples. You want those experiments to happen so you can yeah. learn from them. Yeah, you know? and, and if the, the more of those jurisdictions that are broken up, the better, because you get more data points, you get more experiments. Um, yeah. But if this were one world government and Neil Ferguson was was running the whole show, um, we, we would never know whether the dictates were logical or not. Right. It wouldn't be the controls, you know? Yeah. So, and, and not to mention, I don't think any per human is capable of making all of those decisions for billions of people's unique circumstances, right? So yeah. that, that's the other issue with central planning is just a lack of information at the center. So there's, um, yeah, I think there's a host of issues with, with that there, but it, it has, I mean, it's, it's led to some good things. I was really happy to see Jeff on your, on your talk because I think the Great Barrington was just a huge relief yeah. to see that finally there's become an avenue for people to speak out about this. I feel like everyone else's voices have been kind of muted by um, just yeah. the board. Um, well, I mean, there there have been individual doctors and scientists coming forward from the beginning, but they're you know banned on YouTube. It's I think it really took them coming together and having this mantle or having this this statement they could get behind because it's just that much harder to censor and it's that much harder to discredit. Right. Yeah, and it's interesting because they're they're trying to discredit it with, I think, very hypocritical terms. Like the, the mm-hmm. whole the whole snow memorandum is is, I mean, they're creating a, a, a straw man saying, "Well, you guys are the let it rip people." That's not true. It's not let it rip. It's it's it, what it we've done for centuries. Yeah, I mean, they're 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 complaining about there not being enough resources, and then when you tell them that okay, let's allocate them intelligently, they complain saying it's unethical. Uh, you know, and then you know you say this is just a strategy to prioritize who gets the virus first. Uh, it's better to let the virus get to the people who have the most likelihood to survive it, which is the young, mm-hmm. and concentrate all your testing resources onto the people who are most vulnerable. And they, they seem to think that's unethical, but if you look at what's going on in these vaccine trials, that's exactly what they're doing, is the vaccines mm-hmm. are going directly to the people who have the least likelihood to be have negative consequences. They're, they're ripping out the comorbids. So right. the Great Barrington right. Declaration is actually happening, and it's happening in the vaccine trials. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. So I've, yeah. I've just not, I, I don't get it. I don't see how they can, they, they, how, they how they can be attacking uh, Martin and, and Jay and these other folks on this because it seems as if they're, um, they're painting them as, as let it rip libertarians, as if that's a, a Coke word or something. Right, which, which and, some of them are insulted by, by the way. 
I, well, it's, it's, it's a little bit crazy when you consider Ferguson, I, I heard, had Coke money, more so than, than, than AIER, oh, I, think, I think Jeff mentioned on your... Yeah, on your, they had, right, the AIER got, got some teeny tiny amount, and I think you're right. And now they're, yeah, now they're poisoned, poisoned with Coke, yeah. but Ferguson is somehow clear of it, and then I, the, Stur, the, the Sturgis bike rally paper that came out. Oh, yes. Yes, that white paper that got debunked, that was funded by the Coke brothers. You know, oh, like, was it? Yeah, if you go oh, to the bottom, the Charles Koch okay. Foundation funded that thing. So uh, how is that a, you know, if, if that's what you think you're libertarians, you, you missed it. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I mean, the other thing about that, though, is that it's so interesting to me how the people pushing pushing the the lockdown narrative have managed, and I, and I get that it's not, this is part of something that's been going on for years. It's not just about the lockdowns but how they've managed to turn our social norms on their head. I mean, human society for, for thousands of years has progressed by interacting with pathogens, you know, building immunity, um, you know, doing exactly what the, the Great Barrington Declaration says. And yet now these guys have, have so twisted the narrative. They've so twisted what people have come to see as normal that that is now seen as crazy, risky, you know, a risky experiment. Yeah. 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 How did they manage to, how did they manage to flip the narrative so completely opposite to what it's been for all of our history? It's a, it's a real twist of words because the, the same folks that are in those circles have always championed personalized medicine. And there's nothing about this that's personalized when you start saying we're going to, no, you, you cannot prioritize healthcare on the people that are a thousandfold more risky. You must treat them all the same, right? Right, uh, right. And, and in doing so, you can't talk to one another. You, can't, you have to separate. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very anti-community, yet they're, they seem to be purporting to be socialists or, or community-oriented, but everything they're doing is, is community-dissolving. It's like... It's destroying, an, yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. you know, and cer- certainly not, you know, expressing any any care for the elderly. I mean, they don't want it. They don't even, you know, there was a protest in uh, nursing homes in Florida or something. There were all these, all these residents of the nursing home standing out there with signs saying, you know, we'd rather die than, than live like this. And when you think, I mean... It's it's criminal to force yeah. people to live that way when like the the most important thing in their lives is probably connection with their families, and to take that away in their last years or months of their lives, I mean that's sick. Yeah, yeah, that was. It, it's interesting when you look at some of this excess um, mortality data because you see this in a, in a lot of countries that it's like I think even in Sweden there isn't an excess mortality. Like, right in Sweden, people, there was not in in Ireland also nothing. Yeah, the, yeah. the people who would have and there's no flu either. So the the right. is they would right. have died of flu, but you know COVID yeah. stole stole the prize from. And them. if yeah, and if we hadn't been watching COVID, these would have been in the flu statistics. This these would have been because here in the U.S. we don't you know we don't count we don't go no, and don't, test everybody for the flu. Yeah, yeah. So like, all these COVID. Sorry. Yeah, it would have been thrown into that, that categorization. Yeah, category. right. So it's, yeah, it's just, it's, it's as in my, what I, one of the things I wonder, you know, I think it would take a lot of digging to sort of come up with the data for this, but what, what would happen if you took the, the numbers, uh, the, the excess mortality from nursing homes, if you took those numbers out of the total excess mortality figures, what would you be left with? Yeah, I have I've not done that math, but I I bet there's um 
I mean, you'd have I, to get the excess. Or one of your guests has, has been has been tracking that quite closely, and and Elgato Mello and Gummy Bear, these people on Twitter that are anonymous but doing great work. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, they seem to be tearing into that data, and every time I look at it, it seems as if there's. Uh, when all is said and done, I think what we're going to see is the IFR is going to decay to common colds. I mean, it's it's funny you get in these discussions with people on Facebook or on Twitter, and they're they're just like, no, the IFR is no longer one percent; it's 0.57. And, and you're like, you know what? I remember speaking to you in the spring, and you're claiming it was three percent. Now, now you've conceded at 0.57, and we we have more people like Ian Eads's paper coming out saying it's like you know under 0.2. Do you see where the trend line's going? You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like as we start to discount some of this comorbid crap and some of the overclassification and some of the billing incentives that are going on, this is going yes. to pay to other HCOV levels. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and I mean, looking looking just at the excess deaths, though, I feel like that's that's the one thing we can look at and say, okay, you know, there were or were not excess deaths, um, and some were attributed to the lockdowns and all of that. But you know, there was also this crime of forcing the the positive patients into nursing homes with you know the the last place you want them right you know yes, how many of the deaths are be, are directly due to those policies because the that's, care policy <laughs> that's, yeah that's what it should be named Cuomo care <laughs> I mean, it's why is he most why? affordable care act because you get terminated instantly? <laughs> right, right. I mean, it, these, these people dark. have to be prosecuted criminally. That's he's got a book out singing how wonderful he is now about managing the the COVID crisis. It's like it it, it couldn't get more Orwellian. It's um, yeah, it's, it, it's 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 nuts. Yes, I I, I think the um I, the IFR thing is really interesting because it, there, there are numbers that are inflating it. And, um, a lot of that is billing incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of reporting incentives. So if, if you look through, um, the CMR, which is the center for Medicaid and Medicare, um, or CMS, I think it is services. Um, they actually have fines out to laboratories. If you don't report, um, there's a thousand dollar fine for the first failure and 500 for everyone after that. Um, so if you fail to report thousands of patients, I don't know what the bill's going to be, but, um, so they have to be reporting COVID from the CLIA laboratories in order to maintain their CLIA license. Uh, uh-huh. so they don't have that same fine structure for flu. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, in order for companies that are running CLIA labs, they're going to over file. Right. There's right. no harm in over filing. There is harm in under filing. How, how do they... How do they um, enforce? I mean, how do how do they determine if someone's under filing? How I, I don't know what the what their surveillance or the policing is of that. I just noticed that in in the regulations that um, wow. AM, I think it was the AMP and CMS and also CLIA had these documents about how people they've been out since I think March that how people have to be there's penalties in place if you don't re- report wow. the number of cases. Now I think it's deep it's de-identified data, but it's still you know, an incentive to get your Excel sheets in right. or we're, we're going to come knocking. Um, so that's going to inflate numbers. And then the reimbursement things I've heard about are frightening. Um, the reimbursing the hospitals. Reimbursement being that, uh, yeah, but if you're in the hospital and you, a patient has COVID, there's um, due to the CARES Act or I think something in the emergency um, use authorization of these things, uh, there isn't liability for these patients. Uh, so if you have a flu patient, you'd rather they be a COVID patient because uh, the hospital does not have any malpractice liability during a pandemic. Um, so, oh, are you kidding me? Yeah, they're going to push patients into that bucket. Likewise, they do have the reverse incentive 
for nosocomial infections. If you get a hospital acquired infection, the hospital has to pick up the tab for that patient, unless it's COVID. <laughs> uh, wow. I knew so, they were getting reimbursed for them. I didn't realize their malpractice was, was waived. Yes. Yeah. So there's a host of things that make everyone want to bucket this thing as COVID, um, particularly mm-hmm. when all the hospitals are, the, the, their finances have been ter- tossed upside down with these no, lockdowns. Yeah. And yeah. so they're, they're having to furlough employees. They're financially- Well, a bunch of them have closed. And then the CDC is giving them a hall pass on, you know, if you think it's COVID, just whisp, you know, just call COVID. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I think when that all clears, concurrently with the improvements in therapies, now that we know more about vitamin D, about HCQ, yeah. dexamethasone, um, ivermectin, it doesn't it doesn't look like um, the remdesivir, uh, you know, child has 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 paid off for Fauci. That one looks like it's getting it's getting rebuked um, in the most latest studies. But but there's other therapies that are that are coming along. So the, the survivability is going to go up. Yeah. The, the age demographics are going to go down. Um, and a lot of the people who were susceptible to flu that got unfortunately cleared out from this. So I think you're going to see the IFR as most diseases continue to tumble to the point where it does look like a common cold and maybe a tough one, but, um, it's, it's not something that you would necessarily say mask up and lock down. Like when you ask these folks online, okay, put your line, your tyranny line in the sand. Like what is the IFR upon which you reopen society and stop wearing masks? And they, they can't answer that, which to me sounds like, okay, so what you're saying is you, you just want this to be the new normal. Yeah. This yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think, um, I think that is it. And I see an awful lot of people, I mean, you know, some of the people you mentioned on, on Twitter who've really been tracking the data have been saying for the past, you know, month or so, watch out because when the fall comes, they're going to try and pump up the, yeah, because there's always, there's always a rise, there's always a rise in deaths in the fall. That, yeah. That's just going to yeah. happen for respiratory illnesses. But watch out because a they're going to bring in legacy data. They've got all this these deaths to still account for. They have yeah they've got they've got stacked up deaths they've been hoarding. That they're yeah, now. and they're gonna they're gonna keep pushing the the testing. They're gonna keep saying oh cases are rising, cases are rising, and you know. I think well God it's 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 been so exposed what they're doing with that. How can anyone fall for that? And yet, people are falling for it. Yeah. I, it's, it is a bit depressing. I think that the scariest thing isn't this virus. It's, it's the media's capacity to spread the mental one. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's what's scary. A lot of people have asked me about the origins of this thing. And I, I've just frankly been uninterested. I haven't done a very good deep dive on the Wuhan stuff. Cause I'm like, it's not that frightening of a virus. I'm more worried about how this can be so easily weaponized and not even be there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is there, but they, but it's not what this. they said it was. They um, could have done this on OC 43. They could have done this on any cold virus, and and it, that's it, my thinking. That's I mean, that's 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 what it's looking like now. Is that if you shine a light on any, you know, yes, there were excess deaths, and in in some places, in some places, not. Um, but yeah, if you shine a light on anything and decide to make it the boogeyman, yeah. this is what you can create. Yeah. You it's, know, it's an um, exceptional case study in Orwellian fear. One final question, and this might turn into a whole other episode because it's it's um, it's a big issue, and I just wanted to get your thoughts about it. You know, when people are talking about you know developing the vaccine, there's a there's a lot of yes. a lot of conversations about that and a lot of confusion about that. One of the issues that that keeps coming up is that um, is the mRNA vaccine. 
and how this is a new technology for vaccines, not necessarily for other treatments, but it's a new technology. And there are all these claims that, you know, it's going to, it's going to change our, it's going to change our genetic structure. It's going to, you know, it's going to change the genetic structure of if I get the vaccine, my offspring will be affected, et cetera, et cetera. Any insights to shed on that? Yes, sure. So let let me just, um, give folks a little bit of my background so they don't, I, am not a vaccine expert. Um, I'm not a Peter Hotez or, or an Offit. Um, uh, but I, I have a, have experience with, with using transfection of, of RNAs in the past and other cells. And so I understand some of the molecular biology there. Uh, my general bias in this is that I think the whole vax versus anti-vax versus pro-vax is a, is a false dichotomy used to make people fight. Um, because you don't treat any other medicine that way, right? You're not pro or anti-antibiotic. You, you, you talk about a specific one and its features, and that's the way vaccines should be as well because they're, they're very diverse. But uh, in this particular vaccine, I was somewhat excited by it on the surface only because it lacks, a, it potentially could lack, I don't know if this is the case of what's going on in the trials, but by design, you don't have to brew this thing inside of another host. And that has been a problem with previous vaccines is that if you have to actually grow them in another host, you've got to worry about all the contaminants from the other host. Uh, like are there other viruses like SV40 floating around um, and that's caused problems in the past. So if you could make something that didn't have to go through another host, then you have a cleaner background. I don't know what they've actually done with this, whether there are other adjuvants involved. My understanding is it's a, it's a piece of RNA that makes a lot of the peptides um, that the virus makes, but not enough to fully assemble a virus so that it's infective. Uh, and the reason that's important is most other vaccines in the past have um, brewed up a peptide or a response that's that's fairly limited to one particular epitope in the in the microbe or of of the virus, right? So they they, they get your body to build up antibodies against a very small recognition or a small epitope. Whereas if you give the if you give someone like a, a live or attenuated virus where you have the whole thing there, your your immune system gets a lot more places to grip onto it with and is much more effective at, at getting rid of it. I think that happens to be an important topic when it comes to coronaviruses, just because the data that we're seeing right now is there's a lot of like molecular mimicry going on, like that the proteins inside the coronavirus have a lot of similarities to the human proteins. And so uh, you can get these, these odd autoimmune responses, like this antibody dependent enhancement is thought to be a problem with coronaviruses because they have peptides in there that have some similarity to, to other human proteins. So you have to be very careful in picking what epitope you want to present to the immune system. And probably the safest path is to present them all as long as it's not a fully functional virus. So the way they do this is they take some portion of that 29 KB, 29,000 base pair genome, and they knock out some critical regions that might be responsible for making the envelope protein or the spike protein so it can't be infectious. And they get that into your cells by wrapping it in like a lipid bilayer or what's known as a transfection reagent that helps get that RNA into your cell. If you were to inject yourself with naked RNA without any envelopes, your native RNAs that we were talking about earlier would chew it up. So it has to be in this lipid bilayer so your, your, part of your cellular defenses don't actually go and chew it up. Free-floating RNA mm-hmm. degrades pretty quickly. So they package it in like a lipid bilayer or some type of emulsion and inject it so that it can then fuse with your cells, get inside your cells without necessarily using a spike protein. Uh, and, then, and then it has a, a promoter, a human promoter in there that will get your human um, polymerases and, and, and RNA, maybe your RNA-dependent RNA polymerase to go and copy this thing and, and start making those proteins. Uh, 
And when it does that, then your immune system can, can, can stage a fight against it and preferably a better fight than it could if you just presented it with one peptide that was unique mm -hmm. to the virus. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the thing about coronaviruses that are kind of interesting is that um, they make one very long peptide. Uh, this is kind of bizarre, is, is that all of the genes in the coronavirus are expressed as one single long peptide that then gets chewed up by a nuclease that's, or, or, or I should say a, a pepsidase that's in there that then goes and chops it into smaller pieces. That usually doesn't happen. And in, in most other, you know, human biology, we, we see proteins get kind of expressed as a, as a unique unit. You don't make a big long one uh, of 10 genes glued together and then go dice it up with some type of enzyme. So that the coronaviruses do have some very interesting processing that require proteases. And that's why there's a whole class of these protease inhibitors out there to go and try to knock out that, that particular function. So I don't know the details of how Moderna is doing that. Um, but presumably that's part of their art is to get these things expressed in the cells uh, and to get them properly um, digested and presented to your immune system so that it's, it's a, ideally a clean vaccine. Um, now, I only brought this up, I think, in one of our posts is that I've seen a couple people suggest that this like modifies your germline. And I've not seen any evidence of that. I'm happy to be shown wrong if that's the case. But that would be, if, even if that were the case and you were to make it a retrovirus, that would get into your cell, turn into DNA, and integrate itself into your genome. It would happen to that one cell, and it wouldn't necessarily end up in your offspring. Um, but I don't even think that's happening. I think this RNA is getting into your cells, turning into these proteins, and then getting degraded. Um, there's no evidence that they're taking a retrovirus approach. And I don't think that would ever be approved because that's just too, too much monkeying going around to be modifying the actual germline of the DNA. Uh, so I, I don't think that's actually the case with the coronavirus. If someone has papers, please forward it to me. I'll read them. But I, I don't think it's actually modifying your DNA. It mm -hmm. is certainly hijacking your cells to make um, SARS-CoV-2 peptides that your immune system can can learn from and hopefully learn from in a way that isn't as um, dangerous as the natural virus. Now, dangerous is something that I think. There's the biology side of this of danger, and then there's the politics side of this of danger, and I think that's the bigger danger, is that these companies are have all types of weird deals going on in terms of the incentives, the, the billions of dollars that are being poured upon them, the insider trading of the stock that's going on, and, and the lack of liability that they have when these things go to the market, and the chances yeah. are someone like Cuomo is going to mandate them. Yeah. Um, that's a really frightening scenario that I frankly think, in my opinion, is going to be more dangerous than just, uh, for someone my age, of just getting the natural thing and being done with it. Mm. Um, so I, I, I'm waiting and going to see how other people do with that. If they want to get in line and guinea pig, I cheer <laughs> them on. But um, I personally am going to, going to step back and watch with caution. Yeah, I mean, given all that, and especially given given the, the, the lack of, of liability, what incentive do the producers, if any, of, of vaccines, of this vaccine in particular, have to ensure safety. I mean, they've signed this ridiculous pledge of, you know, that we're going to... Oh, well, you've got, you've got Gavin Newsom. He's going to make sure it's safe in California. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's basically it, right? There's there's no... That's, I think that's an important point that no one brings up about FDA trials is that once you get through the trial, there's usually like a scale up in manufacturing and then you have to consistently make that product year for year and make sure it's clean. And that's never even discussed. Once you've gotten through your safety trial, there's this assumption that they're going to be perfect there forward. And that's, not, that's really hard to do. You've got to scale up these, these things to meet global demand. 
And, you know, crap happens in manufacturing pipelines and mm -hmm. there's no incentive for people to actually look for it once you give them liability waivers. So mm -hmm. uh, it, it's like when people say, oh, this vaccine is safe. It's like, which vial? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's safe over what? This vaccine is clear, but not like, well, have you tested a million of the vials to see what the CV is on the safety of them? That they right. Don't and, and how long are the trials themselves? You know, are you checking Too to sure. see if some yeah, you know, if 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 you've got some chronic condition that's going to appear a year down the line, we're not going to know I, about I'm, that. I'm stunned that they they claim there's a cancer preventative one. You know, like this this whole uh, that one boggles my mind. And, and and now there's there's word coming out that it may actually cause cancer, it's cervical cancer, right? So that 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 oh, thing that one's like a big yeah that one's a big get away risk. with claiming it it didn't cause cancer and not run the study for at least a decade. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah, no, that, they that never even looked at that question. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I feel like that's that's kind of the bigger issue that I hope is coming to light is just the, um, just the nature of this industry and how it's been shielded from accountability um, in so many different ways, including what we're seeing now, which is so much influence on the information that we get. You know, it's 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 not mind boggling to me because I've been watching it for a while, but. You know, this has, yeah, to, this has to. It's interesting to see in that, you know, if, if you've been in, you know, reading this space and following, you know, what Ron Paul's been saying for many years and the people, you, you've kind of learned that the media is a manipulation machine. But I yeah. think 90% of Americans are discovering that right now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And they're kind of going through this disillusionment of who do I trust? Where do we get valuable information? And right. next thing they know, they're trusting their tribe whether yeah. you're left or you're right yeah. and, and, and they, they, their heels dig in much, much quicker. But, um, and unfortunately I think the only answer is now is that you have to go through and read the papers yourself or, 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 or find people that you view are, are, are less conflicted mm -hmm. and look at their monetary incentives, right? The, the challenge I've had with a lot of the government funding is that it does tend to asymmetrically cement their version of the truth very quickly. Like it had happened in, in HIV, very, very once HIV mm -hmm. and Gallo came up with this, um, money poured on it, and that tends to cement the wrong idea into, into the right. ground very, very quickly. And then the war of asymmetric, you know, asymmetry in that equation, all the other ideas get defunded. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and outright attacked. And outright attacked. Yeah. So I, I do think that is um, that's something we have to be aware of. And and I do think it's something I take a lot of caution when I read work coming out of government funded labs. That's always in my mind. Mm -hmm. Is that this was a selection bias to get the grant? They why was this? Why did the person get the grant? We see this in the cannabis field all the time. Like NIDA studies are always funded to look at the harms of drugs, not the benefits. Right. So you have all of this litany of of really crap science showing that cannabis is bad for you. You can't find a death anywhere in the literature. Yeah, yeah. There's dreams of this. So that's going on everywhere in the industry, and it's just not fully recognized because the nature of the funding is coming through. Uh, a money machine that frankly is, is paying for what it wants. Mm -hmm. uh, we want more research on COVID. Now there's grants out there for long COVID, right? So we're going to find <laughs> long COVID, right? right? Where are the grants for long flu? Yeah. 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 They're not that. I don't think they're there. So I want, I want the grants for long vaccine, but yeah. That's... Yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're not going to get those. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's that revolving door as well. We have to keep an eye on. I, I don't know. Um, I've looked up Fauci's, uh, patent estate. It's it's not on COVID vaccines, but he's got some patents on vaccine technology. So mm -hmm. I think he naturally is kind of 
coaching the industry in that direction. And I've also seen a history of people in their positions tend to lobby for drugs that are on patent that still have mm-hmm. a marketing budget attached to them because they might get some grants out of it. Right. 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 Whereas anything that's a generic is like, they're going to, they'll even pay to set up trials that will wreck those things. Oh so yeah. They, oh yeah. I mean the, the trials that were done, the, the hydroxychloroquine trials, again, I think were criminal. They knew that those levels were, were, were toxic. Yeah. Yeah. And then the surges fear stuff was a absolute yeah. and a joke. And so now the whole peer review system is like, who do we trust? We don't have, but thank God. I mean, do you, do you think that this is going to cause people to really wake up and recognize that that's going on? Do you think, do you think this is going to lead to change? I think it is. Cause I'm seeing more and more of it online where like today nature came out suggesting it's going to be like 9,000 pounds to publish open source in nature. And all these academics are like, numbers keep going up. We can't afford to publish in nature anymore. And where's this money going? Oh, it's going to nature to do the review, but then they're asking me to do the review for free. Right. (laughs) Right. Who's actually all the academics are getting robbed to do nature's work for them. Yeah. Uh, And, uh, and then if you turn around and say, well, why don't you guys just pay each other and figure this out as a peer to peer network. And they're like, no, you can't have money in the game. You're like, you're already doing money. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> and these guys are, are, are loading you up with pharma ads all the time, and, and they're probably influencing the peer review. Even Richard Horton, I think, from New England Journal, is it, is it Lancet or New England Journal of Medicine? I can't remember. But, but some of the lead editors of NEGM and Lancet have come out being like, yeah, we just yeah. wagged on pharma. I mean, oh, yeah, 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 and, and good so for them. That's um, going on. So we need, we need to decentralize peer review. And, um, you know, I've spoken about this before, and I don't, yeah. I don't profess to have the answer on this, but. It's never been, I remember I gave a talk on this at a Texas Bitcoin conference um, two years ago and people thought I was out of my mind <laughs> and that we're going to you know, set up a new Uber like network of peer reviewers for people to pay each other and they'll be transparent. And when they put the review on Twitter, they can get torn apart as to whether or not simply and gave you a glowing review or whether it was a legitimate review, their, their reputation's at stake. This yeah. will probably work better than what we have now. And with those crazy. Yeah. And now more and more people are like, that might make sense because Twitter seems to be where all this shit gets taken down. Right. And and uh, we don't really need the journals to be taken six months to do these reviews only to find out that they didn't do their homework on the fact that the Surgisphere people had relations with Gilead. And didn't even have any actual data. No, no. I mean, yeah. that was such a joke. It's like, why does anybody, why does anyone take this process seriously anymore after that? That's just... And they paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm definitely, I'm going to have you on again to talk more about that. Cause I feel like that's, that's a huge story. You know, what's been happening with the preprint sites um, and what you guys did too, which we we talked about in the previous episode, you know, it's, it's ripe for, for a revolution in, in peer review. And I feel like that's happening now. That's. um, I I think blockchains have a, a lot of promise here. And I was really happy to see Michael Levitt starting to catch on to these things too. He was, I, I saw a couple of posts of his about how he thinks these things may, may play a role. See if you can get him on. He's, he's lately been yeah. beaten up by a few of his peers and might, might be interesting. Yeah, I saw that. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's the kind of shame game that's going on. Uh, and I, I do think a lot of it is, is due to government funding, that we have mm-hmm. an academia who tends to worship hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And um, they see themselves expanding. They may not admit to this, but I think their grants grow and their power grows the more they pump the panic and, and they become more relevant because they now have a voice about how dangerous this could be. And, yeah. and they'll get the more dangerous it is, the more money they'll get. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know that they're nefariously doing this like Dr. Evil. I just think it's a, no. bit, of, a bit of human nature that suddenly 
they were epidemiologists that no one gave a crap about, and now they're suddenly have two hundred thousand followers on on Twitter, and uh, and they're in discussions with the president and Scott Atlas, and they're throwing mud back and forth. Uh, it totally changes the dynamics, and so. Uh, I would rather see more free market money going in just because mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's judiciously applied a little bit more. I think when money rains from government, you, there's usually some backdoor deal that got it there and then there's no one accountable as to how things go. Uh, and, yeah. and you, you can't, you can't trace any of the accountability through the government system. Like, you know, we funded Wuhan. Yeah. I bet th- there's, why isn't there like an investigation as to why mm-hmm. did we fund that? And mm-hmm. you, you, it, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be like squid ink. And they're all going to disappear. Uh, whereas I think on the private side, no, you can bring some of these people to court. You can hold some right. There's accountability. There's there's some kind of accountability at least. And, and there's people putting their own money into the problem, and so they they're probably vetting whether it's good money spent. Whereas when you're spending taxpayer money, it's throw yeah. a couple hundred million there, a couple hundred million there. Spend the, this has to be like you know we got to deploy this capital politically by April, otherwise it's a disaster, right? And yeah. so it just gets thrown out really chaotically. So I'd love to come back and talk, talk to you again at some other point about this, because I'm sure in, in a month's time, it'll all be different. It'll feel like a year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's actually kind of exciting what's, what's happening there and, you know, we'll see, see where it goes. Um, but thanks for coming on again. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely catch up again. Yeah. Excellent. Brittany. Take care. I love the, love the cast. I keep uh, eagerly wait them. So uh, it's, uh, awesome. it's a great show you got. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye.